Greetings, Rare Ones, and welcome to this special bonus series of the Rare Birds Emerging Markets Podcast with me, your host, Joanne A. Hamilton. This special bonus series is an exploration into the frontier market country of Guyana. It is an exploration driven by curiosity so that together we can learn more about the varying emerging and frontier markets across the globe, as well as the individuals on the ground driving the action. So why Guyana? If you type Guyana in Google, you may be surprised by what you unearth. More than likely, a series of articles about or related to the country's discovery of oil in 2015. This has subsequently led to an influx of new investments in different sectors across the country. In this three-part series, you will hear me in conversation with entrepreneur and Guyana-focused merchant banker and asset manager, Stephen Jasmine. This series is titled Guyana Startup Nation. It consists of three parts. Part one, the origin story. Part two, the Guyana story. And lastly, part three, Startup Nation. Crucially important, this series, like all the Raybird series, are for informational purposes only. Nothing you hear in this series is investment advice of any kind. As always, I'm excited to share this content with you. So let's get to it. Bye for now. Welcome to part one, the origin story. In this episode, you will get to know Stephen. We then discuss what it was like building and scaling his first startup, The Flashpoint Group. You will next hear Stephen discuss his experiences working with Louisiana's multi-generational oil family businesses. Stephen provides an overview of the oil industry and explains the difference between merchant and investment bankers. You will also hear the fascinating story of how he landed in Guyana. Finally, you get to learn about his most recent company, SC3, the smart city clearing company and the vision he has for it. Listen in. Greetings, Stephen, and welcome to the Rivers Emerging Markets Podcast. Excellent. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> it's great to have you here, Stephen. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. So, Stephen, let's jump right in. Tell us who are you, your background, where do you come from? Yeah, so I am a... Uh, a U.S. citizen uh, working and helping to develop uh, Guyana, South America. And so I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia. That's where my family's based. And over the past four years, I've been living and working uh, almost full-time down in, in Georgetown, Guyana, in South America. Okay. So how did you end up getting to Guyana? What's the background story there? Yeah, so... Uh, you know, the short version is that I, uh, I was working as a chief restructuring officer in uh, Louisiana in the United States, and we had a family office management and consulting practice. And so I was helping multi-generational oil field service companies, family-owned oil field service companies, uh, you know, run their businesses more efficiently under a Bain Capital, Bain Consulting model, 
And while I was doing that, I would usually spend one week a month in Louisiana and I'd spend three weeks a month working out in Silicon Valley. And, uh, you know, the tech world uh, involved with some of our technology portfolio companies where we were focused on, you know, smart cities, Internet of Things and autonomous vehicles. And so in that process, I ended up learning and finding out about Guyana while I was acting as that chief restructuring officer for some of those families in the oil and gas downturn in uh, 2015. And as a part of that work, I ended up coming, becoming a liquidator, and having to liquidate some of the assets of the families on behalf of the bank, the commercial banks and investors that were involved with those companies. And in doing so, I literally island hopped mm. my way through the Caribbean. Um, stopping at St. Kitts and Nevis along the way Yay! and selling a boat to <laughs> one of the families in St. Kitts. Uh, you know, and then I landed in Guyana in June of 2017 and absolutely fell in love with the country. Felt like it was a very similar working environment to uh, the bayou in southern Louisiana, okay. which if some of your, I know most of your listeners are tech oriented, but uh, Louisiana is the center of the offshore oil and gas industry for the United States of America. And so all the service companies that support and develop and run America's offshore oil and gas industry work out of a port called uh, Fushan, Louisiana. And so Port Fushan. And so with that, you know, I got to Guyana in June of 2017. At the time, they had found 2 billion barrels of oil because of my relationships and contacts into Houston as a result of all the work I was doing in the offshore oil and gas industry. I was able to to kind of understand and learn the magnitude of what was coming for Guyana. Yeah. And with my experience also working globally as a banker and an oil and gas expert, along with a technology expert, I thought, you know, no better time like the present. Let's, uh, Guyana is the future. I'm always, you know, in my work as an analyst and banker and consultant, you know, it's my job to kind of see what's coming over the horizon. And that's where a lot of business opportunities lie. And so in that, you know, tracking of the data and understanding the environment, I believe that Guyana was going to become a very critical country for South America and the Caribbean mm -hmm. and not only play, a, you know, a, a role regionally as a leader, but because of the size of the resource that we were hearing about and what I was kind of finding behind the scenes through some of my connections, realized that, you know, this is a, a once in a lifetime opportunity to to be able to set up my merchant bank uh, in Guyana and, you know, landed there, established operations, launched the country's first Western style commercial real estate firm and really started to, to work towards, you know, building what now after four years has been, you know, a very successful practice and is only really just now starting to, to, to catch and grow. As you know, startups, it, takes time to get companies kind of off their feet and find the right product market fit and, and wait for the market to kind of get where it needs to be. But, you know, now we've positioned ourselves and we're really looking forward to what's going to come as a result of, you know, a world-class oil find with some very unique characteristics and some great opportunities. And so that's where we are and that's kind of how it started. Uh, looking forward to digging in deeper with you. Yeah, you you went to business school, right? You went to Emory Goizeta Business School, and from there, did you go straight into the industry that you're working in now, or did you, were you doing some other things before? I'm trying to kind of plug the, the the missing pieces, sort of. Yeah, no, thank you. Great question. So, 
I was very fortunate uh, when I was at Emory, I met some amazing adjunct lecturers and, you know, they were all bankers and, and worked in, you know, worked on Wall Street and did different things. And, you know, one of them is actually a very prominent uh, Jamaican individual who, you know, left Jamaica, came to America. And he was one of my professors who's a Harvard Business School um, alumni. And, and in that, you know, one of the things he taught me along the way was, you could go work at Goldman Sachs and, you know, get the golden handcuffs and become, you know, work your way up the banking rakes. Because as you know, banking is a very apprenticeship-based industry. You start mm -hmm. young and you kind of track your way up to the top. Right. Uh, as I like to joke, you wait for other people to die or quit. It's very traditional how, industry. Yes, yeah. very, very traditional. No, yeah. or like himself, you know, coming out of the Caribbean, he had started out, raised his own funds, took a more entrepreneurial approach to banking. And so I was fortunate because of all the hard work I had done. You know, I had a really deep background in technology, loved startups, loved being an entrepreneur and decided, you know, you could do the traditional route of going with the golden handcuffs or you could do it yourself. And what I ended up doing was when I graduated from Emory, I graduated in three years. I was very fortunate. I worked hard. Yeah. I was running a company. So when I graduated, I sold one of my companies and ended up partnering with my partner who I'm still in business with today. And together we launched at the time a Fortune 500 management consulting and marketing consulting uh, agency uh, called Flashpoint Group. And so with that, you know, Flashpoint, we raised three and a half million dollars in debt and equity. We built the business. We were, you know, consultants of record with companies like Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola, Johnson & Johnson. And so, you know, I was 21 years old at the time and I was fortunate enough to be helping, you know, the CEOs and the boardrooms and the C-suites of these, you know, you know, Fortune 10, Fortune 50 companies and helping them navigate, you know, through change and work through change. And that really, you know, helped give us the platform and the experience, both, you know, on the banking side, because I, you know, worked together with my partner and we raised the debt and equity to do it successfully and build the practice and then, you know, getting access to those boardrooms and, and those CEOs and, and helping them run their organizations as a big three, a big four consultant, similar to, you know, McKinsey or a Bain or a PwC or EY kind of advisory services and advisory practice. And so in doing that, you know, we had a lot of exciting case files and we had a lot of exciting mandates and it was just, it was quite a surreal experience. When you're going through it, you don't really appreciate it. But now looking back on it, you know, I can say that, yeah, it really set the stage for, you know, the future of my career and, and where it went from there. And so I was very blessed and fortunate and excited to, to you know, have such a strong start and, and grow rapidly, you know, and use that as a platform to launch what has been an extremely interesting and exciting career. And fortunately, I can say that I've never worked as an employee for anyone, you know, since I graduated university, uh, you know, 15 years ago now, uh, 16 years ago, and it's been quite the adventure. And so, you know, if you would have told me back then that one day I'd be helping advise, you know, and position a country and, and be involved, you know, on a global scale, I would have laughed at you. But the universe has a sense of humor and, you know, <laughs> life takes you where it's going to take you and you just got to keep showing up and, and, and see where the opportunities go and follow them. Definitely. But I think obviously you, Stephen, you've got the mindset because I think so like you, you speak about being blessed. So many of us block our blessings. I think you're, you're very good at seeing opportunities and grabbing them, you know, like 
you just kind of went with everything. But I think it's also um, coincidental that the first person you met that influenced you was Jamaican, uh, somebody from the Caribbean. And here you are working now with Guyana. So it's kind of come full circle too, right? Oh, it's amazing. You know, just the little things in life and the signs. I'm a big believer in signs, you know, as you're going along your journey and, you know, following just and, and watching things fall into place. And a lot of times, you know, over the years, you know, you learn things and you get wiser with age. And, you know, one of the things I've learned is that, you know, you can't put round pegs in square holes and you got to kind of follow, follow the river currents, you know. And so there's an opportunity to help adjust the river or move the river, but you've got to, you can't just completely go against the river because when you try to do that, things usually don't work out and you make things a lot harder on you. So one of my main principles in life is to just be patient and kind of see where things go, let them evolve. You know, life's a marathon and I know it's a cliche, but it's, it's, it's about the journey and, and you got to appreciate and, and embrace the journey because otherwise, you know, if you're looking for fast money and, and, and immediate success, I, I know a lot of, especially in the banking world, you know, I know a lot of people, that do do that and they do very successful, but it's just not how I'm wired and it's not my temperament, you know, and I, and personally, I think that those people who kind of constantly are, you know, running almost on a, on a mouse wheel where you just, gonna, once you kind of choose that path of wealth creation, you're just, you're constantly, you know, having to work and, and you're making money, you're losing money at a very quick pace instead of, you know, a more slow and stable, generational investment mindset and, 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 and a long-term wealth creation strategy. And that's, that's really what resonates more with me and how I've gotten to where I am today is more continuing to show up and just set a strategic plan and vision and just wake up every day executing against it and adapting it as the, the market environment changes and as things happen in the field, but still always following your North Star and where you're going. And that's, that's a large part of how I've got to unique position I'm in today. Definitely. And I think that approach works best in frontier and emerging markets. So it's it's paying off handsomely, I'm sure, in the Guyana experience, which we'll get to a little bit later. Absolutely, without a doubt. And and that's where, you know, at any point in our lives, there's everyone, you know, is constantly having wins and losses. And, you know, you're, you're, you're always looking, you know, in the technology world, they talk about, you know, product market fit, mm. um, you know, they, in Silicon Valley, there's kind of this mentality of what's called failing forward. And so, you know, as you continue to just get more and more experience on you, with yourself and with your partners and, and in the world and in the game of life, if you will, you know, it's about how you continue to, to learn from the mistakes. And I can tell you candidly that over my career, you know, I've learned more from my failures and I wouldn't call anything a failure. It's more a life lesson and a learning experience, which is all about mindset and and how you look at the world and how you get up every day. And, you know, but it's through those failures and through those missteps that you really kind of understand things. Uh, there's a saying I'm going to butcher, but mm-hmm. uh, you've never, you can only tell the test of a, you know, a general or a, a boat captain, you know, when it gets to rough seas and when things are challenging, you know, when life is good and, and things are growing. And, you know, when we were in our hyper growth phase with, you know, Flashpoint originally and, you know, growing rapidly and the money was flowing. Ultimately, I didn't, I was too busy caught up in the moment and I didn't appreciate it one and two, I didn't understand quite frankly, the opportunity that I had and I didn't know how to run a company and I didn't even realize because you don't know what you don't know. And, and 
that's a big thing I find in all aspects of life is that it's not a bad thing, but people just, you know, there's something to be said for experience because a lot of people just don't know what they don't know. And that applies in all walks of life and all areas of life and in all backgrounds. You know, it's if all you know is X, then you can't be expected to know X plus Y or the implications of X plus Y. And so with that, that's where my ability as a consultant and a banker have kind of positioned me uniquely to go through life because, you know, I'm able to to learn and walk into any situation and draw on all of my experience and to also kind of step outside of the situation and look at it with a critical eye, which is what, you know, organizations, these, you know, Fortune 10, Fortune 50 organizations that we worked with would hire us to do because they, they were so busy, caught up running their big organizations and dealing with the crises and, and the issues, you know, like Delta Airlines was one of our first clients, you know, I had, I built Flashpoint originally off a, a contract with a bankrupt Fortune 500 company. And so, you know, it, it, watching them go through that process and helping them and, and some of the results that our organization brought to that, our little organization of 40 people had a massive force multiplying effect on, an, on a company with, you know, over 50,000 employees. And we, we helped them navigate the waters of bankruptcy and, and helped, you know, we focused on the cultural transformation side during those, during that time and, and really helped bring them from, I want to say nine or 10 on the JD Power rankings to number one or two with some of the initiatives and the programs we developed for them as a consultant. And so, you know, if we, I realized that through that process, the biggest lesson I took away from that is that me and my team as a small little, like I, I like to call it a pea shooter organization that's under budgeted and undercapitalized, like all, you know, startups are at the time. Yeah. we could still have a massive impact that today, even if you get on an airline and you talk to any Delta employees that have been evolved, you know, for 15 years and are still involved with Delta, you know, and you mentioned the velvet rope tour, you'll see their face light up because it was a It was an instant that they'll never forget that program that we developed. And it allowed us to, you know, make a literally a global impact. And so that mindset has never so the size of any opportunity has never intimidated me because I was fortunate enough very early in my career to realize that, you know, one person and one small team of dedicated people on a mission can make a massive impact and really help change the course of a company in a small way. I'm not going to say we were the only reason that, that all that happened, but, you know, we did help turn the Titanic in a different direction. I'm not saying we helped turn it in a 180 degree direction. But, you know, one of my close friends and mentors was a pilot and he worked with Warren Buffett and he was on the Air Force One squadron for a while. And, you know, one of his big sayings is that, you know, when you are leaving, you know, San Francisco by a plane, there's a two, per, two degree difference as you leave the airport by air and whether or not you end up in New York or Miami. And so you don't have to make massive impacts. You just have to change things by one or two degrees. But over long distances and time, that can have a really large effect. And that was one of the things I was fortunate enough to learn early. And I continue to practice and, and kind of keep in my mindset as I move through life and, and, and approach opportunities and, and realize that, you know, one or two degree differences actually do really add up over the long term. Wow, that's incredible, Steve. You know, what I was going to ask you, uh, you kind of touched on it. You're 21. Uh, you you said you raised three, I think it was 3.5 million, you said, for Flashpoint. 
And I was going to ask you, how, how does it feel to be 21 and working on such a massive project? Were you intimidated at any point? But it sounds like you weren't. You just you just went for it. Yeah, you know, ultimately, you don't realize what you have till it's gone and you don't realize how easy it is. And, you know, it was a lot of people talk about how hard the first million is to make and that the second million gets easier. And, you know, I can say that, you know, that's absolutely the truth. People don't realize that, you know, I started working in, in business and as an entrepreneur, you know, in technology when I was 15 years old and I started working in the with my partner who we launched Flashpoint with, you know, when I was 15. And so I had had, you know, we had been working hard for six years and he had been working for over 10 years, you know, in the industry because he started really young as well up in New York doing what he was doing. And, you know, it was those skills that we developed and, and that time that we spent to give us the platform to quickly dive into what we were doing with Delta and, and consulting and providing those services. And from there, you know, we were able to hire some key, you know, people. We were fortunate. You know, I had the, the former president of Song Airlines, Delta's low-cost carrier. We brought him on board. He was a phenomenal help to us. You know, he helped expand us into a lot of other Fortune 500 companies, gave us a lot of credibility. And so, you know, here I was 21 years old, thinking I was the smartest guy in the world. And, you know, that naivete, because, you know, fortune favors the bold, and, but sometimes you're not really trying to be bold. You just don't know what you don't know, like I said earlier at the start yeah. of the conversation. And so, it was through that process that, you know, I just tried to surround myself with brilliant, experienced people. And that enabled us to, to really keep pushing forward and, and to keep growing and, and, and learning. And that's the biggest thing is that you're constantly learning and evolving. And you've got you've to be willing to adapt or else you fail. And that's, that's really the, 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 the ultimate reality of it. Yeah, you've got to be agile, don't you? Agile is a great word for it. Without yeah. a doubt. Yeah. So from Flashpoint, uh, what happens next? Like, give us the lead up to when you start working with the, the families in Louisiana, the oil families. Yeah. Great. Yeah. No, great point. And so, you know, along the way, unfortunately, as a result, everyone remembers the recession in 2008 and nine. You know, we launched Flashpoint in November 215 and grew overnight. You know, we, we, were, we were working on site at Delta, you know. 12 hours a day. And then we were going back and the team was all at the office, you know, painting and, and putting carpets down and putting together desks and setting everything up. And through that process, you know, it was, it was surreal. And we, you know, had our hyper growth story, but as you know, in startups, you know, startups continue to, to, to need money and, and you're reinvesting every penny that you make into the growth of the company. And my partner and I, you know, definitely did that. And unfortunately, you know, the, the recession of 2008 and nine hit and, you know, we took it on the chin like everyone else and being a professional services company, you know, it didn't matter that I had a client list that, you know, most people on wall street and Madison Avenue would drool over, you know, mm -hmm. spent their whole careers, you know, wishing they had that opportunity or wishing they had a, a book of business like that. And, and, and we're working in those boardrooms and, and C-suites, you know, we ended up having to, to wind down the firm. We didn't have the war chest to ride out the downturn. But even through then, you know, because of my network and some of my mentors, I was able to bring in a chief restructuring officer to help us through that process. And through that, we shut down the company and ended up reinventing ourselves. I, I took a, basically a sabbatical for a year to get my head back on straight because it was sort of like a, 
a meteoric rise and a meteoric fall. And, you know, I, every day I wake up and, and I'm so thankful I went through that process because I learned so much and I wouldn't, it even thread continues and, and we'll get to it, but I'll explain how that ended up helping me get to Guyana and, and being Guyana. But in that process, you know, after that happened and I had taken that sabbatical, I ended up going out and uh, getting my investment banking licenses and I became, you know, I got my FINRA registered licenses, uh, my 79 and my 63, and ended up becoming, started out as a vice president at one boutique investment bank and then ended up working as a managing director at another one before uh, in 2014, we ended up, I hung up my licenses on the sell side, which is that's where you need the licenses if you're selling and brokering deals. Okay. Um, and we set up Flashpoint 2.0, as I call it, and that was kind of a different approach where we wanted to work more with, you know, the, the SME businesses, and you know, we were consulting with these multi-generational family-owned businesses. We reinvented ourselves as sort of the bank capital, bank consulting, fractional family office manager, and so with that, we were we opened the practice down in uh, 214 down in Louisiana. And started advising some of these families and, and and helping them. You know, our model was, we don't want a piece of your multi-generational family-owned business. Hire us as a private equity advisor to come in and, and help streamline those companies and make them run more efficiently. Because for a lot of those organizations, you know, much like Guyana, you know, a CFO was more of a bookkeeper than a CFO, despite mm -hmm. them being a large 20, 30, 50, 100 million dollar, um, you know, annual turnover business. They just didn't have the the wherewithal or the, the the necessity and the understanding that you needed, you know, the sophisticated level of advisory work. And obviously, they're too small for the big four consulting firms to worry about working with them. And so, there was a unique market opportunity to set up sort of this fractional family office management consulting practice. We would come in and, and provide a lot of these services. We were able to bring a lot of value because there's so much fat in these family-owned companies because they're hiring their friends and their family and you know, the printing money. And so there's a lot of opportunities to improve and streamline things. And then we also, big part of our business was helping on, you know, the trust and estate side and the tax planning side, because as if you're fortunate enough to be in a situation where you're in an owner of one of those types of businesses, you know, there are, there are things you can do to help make them even more efficient from a tax planning strategy and also preparing for generational transfers of ownership. And so we would help there a lot because we could bring a lot of value there because for them, that was all kind of a foreign language and they didn't know how to navigate those waters, you know, and then what we would do is we would look to work with them on the alternative investment side of the house, you know, because these families are blue collar families. They don't like public equities. They like to own things that they can touch and feel and brag about mm -hmm. with their friends at the bar. Mm -hmm. And so instead of working with these families to own the corner bar room, we would work with these families to start investing in real estate and then some higher quality opportunities that, you know, would generate more yield than what I call the vanity investments of, you know, owning the local bar room or sitting on the board of a local bank. You know, there's bigger opportunities. Those things are great from a political standpoint, but they're not good from a financial standpoint. And so it was our job to help teach them and educate them and manage some of those alternative investments for them and with them. I had my investment banking licenses and then we opened up the practice in Louisiana. You know, how that practice was structured was that I would spend one week a month in Louisiana and then that gave me the freedom to spend three weeks a month focused on and doing what I want to do and investing in what I wanted to invest in. 
And so I ended up opening an office out in, in Silicon Valley and getting involved with one or two technology startups that allowed me to, and I basically became their West Coast office. And so I was, I would, I would bounce between Atlanta, Louisiana, and San Francisco. And, you know, at the time I was spending most, the majority of my time out in San Francisco. You know, I've always been a 300 day a year on the road consultant and banker. And so I love that process. I love meeting people. I love connecting dots. I love, you know, working in new markets and understanding systems. You know, I've got a big IT background that I didn't really get into, but prior to college and university, you know, I grew up in the dot-com bomb and, and I was a senior systems administrator for the school system I worked at. Um, I was fortunate enough to kind of get a student internship while I was still in high school um, and quickly rose to the ranks. You know, I'm an Eagle Scout. And I, you know, with the skills I had learned becoming an Eagle Scout, it had allowed me to kind of get to the top of my class with um, in high school and, and of the top of the cohort for all the student interns. So I ended up working directly with the, the board of the Board of Education and, and helping those guys working there. And as a senior systems administrator, I really understood technology and I got involved in the computer, what they call today now cybersecurity. Back then they called us hackers. And so I learned, <laughs> yeah. you know, technology and I learned, you know, how systems work. And, and, and I've always taken that, what I call the hacker mindset to anything I do, because what hacking is, computer hacking is understanding a system and figuring out ways to take advantage of it and to position yourself to the bad way to do it is exploit it. The good way to do it is accelerate your leadership in it and accelerate the opportunities that you find in it. So over the course of my whole career, I've always had that mindset and it's positioned me to be able to really grow quickly and learn quickly any environment I go into because I, I take a very analytical approach to it and I look at it as sort of a, you know, a mechanical environment and understand, you know, here are all the pieces, whether it's the human capital pieces, the political pieces, or the actual tactical pieces and how the markets work and how they, they interact together. And then leveraging the value that I can create to help impact those systems and make those changes. And that's really, you know, with that technology background and that technology oriented growth mindset, it's really how I so quickly was able to scale and grow some of these businesses and to push them forward and to see the opportunities and realize that it's all about information access and, and, and understanding the world around you to see how you can position yourself at the, the points that really create value. Because ultimately that's how, as a consultant and a banker, capturing that value, monetizing that value and executing against those constraints is where there's opportunity. And that's how you generate alpha and, and generate returns both for yourself and for your partners and investors as an asset manager and as a, uh, as a banker. I want to give our listeners an idea of these families you were working for in Louisiana, because I think there's a, a big parallel between those families and what you, what you are doing in Guyana. So these are basically like gen families who've been in Louisiana for many years. They've gotten into the oil industry and they've made a lot of money, but they're not exactly the most modern and up-to-date in terms of how they run their businesses, right? Is that accurate? Absolutely. Okay. That's absolutely right. 
so like what exactly are they doing in the oil business can you give us like an idea of like like give us an example not names or anything obviously but like an example of like a kind of business these families would be running just so we can get an idea of what it what it was like yeah absolutely so you know most people don't truly understand how the oil industry works but you know i'll give you a quick overview of it so that that way it kind (laughs) of makes a lot more sense and then you can understand where those families fit into that supply chain but sure the international oil development exploration industry is you know and the international oil companies that run it you know you have the iocs as they're called which are the exxon mobil the hess the totals uh the chevrons you know all those name brand companies the bps of the world they're essentially more of a bank and a financial institution and i liken it to the developer in real estate got it Okay. And so, you know, most people think it's so complex and it's this big mystery box and it's a big mystery industry and it has a lot of complexity to it. But at its base form, you've got these, you know, major developers, if you will, and that and that have these trillion dollar valuations and these massive organizations because they've got they're responsible for, you know, pulling out of the earth our most critical asset, which is oil. And with that, they then, you know, but there's a lot of risk with that, right? And so to help mitigate that risk, the whole industry is based on mitigating risk. And so like any industry, and so what they do is that they hire just like a general, you know, as just like a developer does, a developer doesn't actually build things. They're not the construction company that's hired. And just like in the oil industry, those international oil companies hire the the Slumberjays and the Halliburtons and the the Baker Hughes and the SBMs and the Technic FMCs. And those are the service providers that are become what I would call the general contractors of the oil and gas industry. And then those companies don't want to have a lot of the liability. And so they try to push the liability down even further. And that's where they would push it to those multi-generational family-owned businesses that I was working with in Louisiana and that, you know, are currently being developed in Guyana. You know, but some of those businesses, to answer your question, you know, included, you know, everything from a machine shop, staffing companies to um, the equipment rental houses to even the the big boat companies or the OSV, the work boats and the offshore vessels that in the offshore oil and gas industry, those OSVs are these two and three hundred foot boats that are essentially the tractor trailers of the oil and gas sector. And so, you know, you have these oil platforms, whether you're in exploration or production that are in the middle of the sea, you know, in America, there's what's called an offshore shelf, which is shallow water wells, and there's the deep water wells. But either way, you still have to bring parts and people and food back and forth from the shore to those platforms and to those rigs. And so, you know, a lot of them use airplanes or helicopters, excuse me to bring in, you know, personnel, but you still got to feed those personnel. You still got to, those people need toilet paper. They need, you know, uh, lubes and all kinds of different, you know, supplies that get consumed on a daily basis, cleaners, solvents, um, chemicals. They need, you know, all the kind of replacement parts. And so they would have these 200 and 300 foot work boats that would, you know, go back and forth and literally be nothing more than a tractor trailer on the sea. And so, you know, those were the types of companies that we would be working with and partnering with and, and helping uh, to streamline them and make them more efficient. Uh, and working through that process, you know, we would 
understand their business models. We get to understand the fundamentals and, and, and learn kind of what their portion of the value equation was and how they were contributing value. And, you know, learned a lot about how the oil industry worked. You know, had I tried to use my banking background and go, you know, through the front door into Houston and, and build a practice that way, I never would have been accepted. So I, I like to say that I was brought into kind of the back door into the oil industry through Louisiana, because in Louisiana, I got to meet all my families worked with the Slumberjays and the Halliburtons and, you know, all those big in international oil companies, as well as the international service companies that are publicly traded that you see on the stock exchanges globally and you see on, you know, CNBC all the time when they mm -hmm. talk about the oil and gas sector, you know, and my families were the companies that were hired to actually execute everything that needed to be done. And it was, like I said, everything from the rental side to the human capital side with the staffing and labor all the way through to, you know, providing the transportation and logistics to, to move, to keep the oil field running on a day in and day out basis. Okay. So in, in developer or real estate speak, they're the subcontractors. They're like the tier three in the food chain. So Absolutely. Without okay. a doubt. Okay. Without okay. A doubt. Very interesting. Very interesting. I mean, because... Obviously, we, we, our world revolves around oil, but I, I think this is the first time I've ever had anybody break that down to me in a way that I can understand. The parallel to real estate was perfect. Perfect yeah. to understand. <laughs> I've talked to some very smart people who, That's you know, good. over their career, oil and gas is still a very complex box. Yeah. And it's funny because when I give them this analogy, they like all of a sudden it clicks. Yeah. And they, makes a lot more sense to them and they see it and understand it and appreciate it a lot better. And, and if you understand that kind of pecking order or hierarchy, if you will, it really positions yourself to, to be able to, to once again, you know, look at it. And this comes back to, you know, my hacker mindset and the ability to kind of look at a system and break it down into its simplest forms and kind of, you know, see how the parties interrelate and how things work together and, and what everyone's role is. And if you understand what your role is, then you can understand how to create more value both for the service companies and us as a provider to those companies, you know, and how to, and part of why we've been so successful is that because I had had such a masterful experience with Flashpoint originally, talking and learning the language of Fortune 500 companies and understanding how they think and how they work, you know, as I started to, to represent and, and partner with and work with these multi-generational oil field service companies, I knew how to help them accelerate the relationships with those international service companies and the international oil companies because I understood the mindset and how to communicate and talk and present information and data to those companies with them so that they could strengthen their relationships. I mean, they had been working with those companies 20 years, 30 years before they even met us. But at the same token, it enabled us to really you know, help bring more value because we were able to, to once again, make some of those two and three degree changes in the dynamics of their relationships with those companies to actually kind of help get them as a service provider higher up in the ranks because they were competing against a lot of other people that didn't know and didn't have the experience of understanding how those Fortune 500 companies thought at the board level, which as you know, and you know, everything that happens at the board level sets the the mindset and culture and the the way of thinking for the entire organization. And so helping those families learn how to speak that language and learn how to position themselves and give them that leadership and mentorship helped us to unlock and, and, and create a tremendous amount of value. 
Definitely. So how long, I know you, you set up, you, you got to Guyana in 2017. How long did you work with those families for before you made the transition to um, creating SC3 and then getting into Guyana? Yeah. So as a, you know, in 2015, there was a, a recession in the oil and gas industry. Um, if you weren't in the oil and gas industry, the only recession most people remember is the 2008 one. But in 2015, there was a big price shock and it had a lot to do with the dynamics of the fracking environment and the, the cost structure of the industry. That's a whole nother conversation that I'll, I'll spare you. It's not really relevant to this. But, um, you know, with that, you know, from 2014 to 2017, my time in Louisiana started to come to an end because a lot of unfortunately, a lot of the families that I had been working with ended up becoming insolvent and having to file bankruptcy. And it was only through my background of having to do it for myself that I was able as a consultant to then go in and help them go through that process. And, and that's where I became a chief restructuring officer, working with those families to represent their interests with the creditors and with the, uh, the, the lawsuits and all the, all the, the mess that comes when things don't end up going right. You know, but I had already navigated that personally, you know, back in 2008 and nine myself. And with the, the partners and the, and the people and the advisors I had brought in to help us through that process, you know, as a consultant, I sort of learned the playbook. But what was unique is that I, not only did I learn the playbook, but I also had the empathy of, you know, myself at one point not being able to cover payroll and, and, and all the money that we lost trying to keep things moving and, and, and reinvesting, hoping that it would work out, but not being pragmatic enough to know that it wasn't, unfortunately. And that's just human emotions and human dynamics. And and so I was able to kind of take those skills and help those families. And then that's where I became that chief restructuring officer. And as a part of being a, what's called a CRO, you know, you become kind of the, you end up running the bankrupt companies on the family's behalf because the creditors want someone in there watching things that is not the guy that, or the families that were running it day to day. They needed more of a fiduciary independent person. And so the families and the creditors would work together and kind of appoint us as their de facto representation as a kind of a neutral party to navigate those waters and in navigating those waters. That's where, you know, I started selling some of those OSVs that I was referencing throughout the Caribbean on a liquidation basis, because when they're not using their highest and best use in the oil, in the oil services industry, where they're, be, you know, those boats are being rented for two, five, ten thousand dollars a day, literally for years on end, you know, the next best place for them to be used is an island hopping uh, delivery boat between, you know, the islands. And because they've got big fuel tanks and water tanks, they can bring fuel and water and supplies between the different islands. And so that's how, you know, I was liquidating those assets and it, it kind of became a nice segue because the work was winding down in Louisiana because, you know, unfortunately the families were insolvent and, and did, some of them didn't make it through, but yeah. I was able to leapfrog down to Guyana and, and go from a, you know, where the, the oil field services industry in Southern Louisiana is kind of fading down at, at the end of its growth cycle or at the end of its life cycle to Guyana, where we were just starting the growth of its life cycle. And so once again, understanding systems and understanding the environment and understanding, you know, cycles, you know, it was a logical kind of next step, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, that's a pity it didn't work out for some of those families. Do you ever stay in touch with them? Do you know what's going on with them now? I imagine they just transitioned into other businesses or what, what do you think happened to them? 
Yeah, yeah, no, they're, they're around and, and we still communicate and, you know, some of them are still running full steam ahead. You know, I was fortunate I brought one of the, one of those families down to Guyana. It was, it was a privilege. And so they're, they've built a expanded now and, and have kind of gone international as a result of working with us. And we're really excited about that. But, and some of them are, you know, we're more towards the edge of retirement anyway. And so it, they just kind of went off into the retirement mode and, you know, but ultimately it's, they're doing well and they're still plugging away in, in some way, shape or form, but, you know, it's sort of a shell of what it used to be, to be honest with you. Mm, interesting. And tell us now about SC3 to kind of give us an idea of what exactly SC3 does. Yeah. So, you know, Smart City Clearing Company uh, was originally founded because of my tech background. And so before I even knew where Guyana was on a map, quite frankly, back in 2015, I launched SC3 as a result of all the work I had been doing in Silicon Valley. And so, you know, I'd been spending a lot of time, as I mentioned earlier, out in Silicon Valley, working with a couple of the startups that we had invested in and, and were participating in. And, you know, in that role, you know, what I realized was that, you know, all these big internet companies really wanted to get access to and bring all this new technology into municipal governments. And, you know, it was the rise of the smart city movement back then. And, but the problem was I was going to conferences all around the world. There's a smart city world expo I go to every year out in Barcelona, you know, and I was, I was attending these conferences and, and some of the struggles I had seen firsthand with even the startups I was working with, you know, I realized that these, there's so much of this new technology that needs to be embraced, but cities don't know how to pay for things. And so Smart City Clearing Company was originally founded to help Fortune 500 global tech companies work with and, and figure out ways to finance their technology installations into these cities and, and, and develop some of the financial product to help them be able to, to pay for the, the investing into these cities. And so, you know, we started out doing that. I was looking at different bond structures and different ways to do it. I was fortunate enough to be working with some of the big investment banks uh, throughout the United States that you know, are, are what's called MSRB advisors, which is, you know, every city issues bonds and every government issues, you know, bonds to help finance growth. And we were developing and working with them to develop this product to help pay for all this technology innovation. Because at the time, the only people getting rich with smart cities were the conference promoters that were hosting the conferences for smart cities. Okay. Um, you know, there was a big gap between the, the, the emerging technologies and how to, you know, integrate them and deploy them. And then obviously you've got with government, a lot of legacy infrastructure issues because they've got, you know, these old outdated on-premise systems. This was right as the cloud transition was heating up and everyone was starting to go to the cloud. And, and so, you know, that was what we originally founded SC3 around and, and the whole belief that, you know, and this was back even in 2015, that there's been trillions of dollars in underinvestment in the United States in infrastructure and in municipal infrastructure. Yeah. And so I knew that, you know, it, it's coming. And once again, uh, at the time, I was seven years too early for that. You know, uh, just last week, uh, Joe Biden was on the floor of the Senate pushing a $4 trillion infrastructure investment bill as a result of COVID and as a result of the need to, to bridge that gap with the underinvestment in uh, cities and in infrastructure, government infrastructure yeah. across the United States. And so that was where we started with SC3. And then I found Guyana and I was like, whoa, you know, not only is there a chance now to help 
bring smart technology and, and, and smart cities to a whole country. And it was like, this is a once in a generational opportunity, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity to, to come into a country of 800,000 people and be able to, to bring kind of our experience and, and figure out how to finance all the growth that Guyana is going to be facing over the next decade. And so, you know, what Smart City Clearing Company is, is we're officially a merchant bank. We're domiciled out of the BVIs and we're unregulated. And a merchant bank is essentially the equivalent of an investment holding company. Um, and so, you know, we own different companies where we essentially go out and raise money to execute projects and opportunities with investors. Uh, it's not, you know, we don't work with retail investors. We only work with institutional investors or smart money. And every transaction and every opportunity is kind of on a discrete basis. And so, you know, whether we, the first company we launched in Guyana, that's a portfolio company of Smart City SC3, is a commercial, a Western style commercial real estate firm. And okay. so called Akurai Properties. And so okay. in Guyana, you know, over the past four years, you know, we've worked together to help lease, you know, over a half a million square feet to the international oil companies. Uh, we also worked to get and develop our first 15,000 square foot warehouse as developer of record. And now we've got over roughly 2 million square feet in pre-development on the commercial real estate development side that we're, you know, working through raising the capital and, and working through the pre-development pieces of it to be able to, to build the country. Because as, a, you know, as of right now, there's still only two internationally flagged hotels in Guyana. There's no, um, there's not even a McDonald's yet or a Starbucks. And so there's a lot of growth coming and we've positioned ourselves. We believe that, you know, before you can start focusing on the tech investments and the smart city side of it, you know, you have to have a places for the, the people to sleep and places for people to actually eat and, and operate in the market and grow. And so at the end of the day, SC3 is going to continue to, to evolve and, 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 and over the next 10 years, our vision and my vision for the organization is to become, you know, a commercial bank and, and a full broker dealer and a full financial services firm positioned to be the de facto asset manager for international investors, whether they're pension funds, insurance companies, endowments, family offices, high net worth investors who want to get access to the growth that's going to happen in Guyana. And we sit at that seat as a merchant bank and as a, as a, as a financial and asset manager, helping to bridge that gap, you know, leveraging the four years of experience and boots on the ground partnerships we've developed. You know, last year I spent 330 days in country in Guyana. So I wrote out, you know, a changing government, COVID, closed airspace, you wow. know, curfews, you know, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. or 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfews, all that stuff to really, you know, get to know everyone and to understand what the environment looks like and, and where, and, you know, what the country needs. Because as a steward of capital and as, a, as someone that manages money and, and, and manages investments, it's all about you know, raising capital with a story like Guyana is easy. It's about, I'm more concerned about the execution once I'm given that capital. And so we've been fortunate to date, you know, we've self-financed everything off our own balance sheet. We've not raised any third-party money. You know, we've worked hard to really understand things. And now Guyana is finally poised to really start the flywheels catching for the next phase of growth. And we're at the center of that. And, and that's really an exciting place to be. And it's been a long journey. And 
if you, uh, when I first got down there, I was naive once again and thought it would be something that would happen in a year or two. And it's taken four years, but as you know, with startups and, and, and Guyana is a startup nation. And yeah. so going through that process, you know, we've now positioned ourselves to really focus on, okay, here's where we're going, here's what we're doing. And now let's open the doors and start telling the story and, you know, going around and over the next two months, I'll be in, I think, eight different countries across the world, talking and telling and sharing the story of Guyana, sharing my experience and really starting to attract massive investment into Guyana to help properly grow Guyana and take advantage of the opportunities that most people will never see or never have access to. Right. Sure. Now, what I want to give the listener right now is in the world of banking. So as the merch, you know, you have investment banking and they, they deal with the more institutional clients. And then you have sort of retail banking, uh, consumer banking for individuals. And then you kind of sit in the middle, I guess, as the merchant banker. So your job is to uh, sort of, I guess, attract you are, I guess you're underwriting. Do you, do you secure the funding? You underwrite it and you also attract and work with the high net worth individuals or the uber high net worth individuals and the, the other sort of institutions that want to get into Guyana. Is that where you are? Is that sort of in that full spectrum? Great question. Great point. So, you know, as a merchant bank, think of us as, you know, a private equity fund or a venture capital fund. You know, we've got portfolio companies, we've got investment opportunities. The merchant bank's stake in those companies is kind of where the, just like a GP or just, you know, like the GP in, you know, a VC venture, fund or a private yeah. equity fund or a real estate fund. Yeah. You know, we sit in that spot as the GP. Okay. And then to your point, we also have the, you know, the investment banking platform, the investment bankers create the investment grade product and okay. package that product and issue okay. that product to the market. And then they run the process of raising the capital, whether it's debt or equity. And so what we're doing with SC3 is, you know, we are building a broker dealer. We're positioning ourselves. It looks like over the next six to eight months, we'll be opening offices in Jamaica, in Kingston, Jamaica. Okay. And that will be the center of our practice and, and where we do all of our capital formation and our financial services back office. Okay. And so the merchant bank is where we park all of our stakes in all these different ventures and businesses okay. and our ownership in them. And then on the, the investment banking side, you know, that's where we actually productize and take to market and raise the capital. And as the lead book runner and the lead arranger, it's called, of these new issues, when you have a new issue, it's either debt or equity or some projects require both. And so you have to go raise two different types of capital, you know, one from commercial banks and insurance companies, and then one from you know, more higher risk side that are one at the equity exposure because the return profile is different, obviously. Okay. You know, debt, you have a secured offering, so the risk is a lot less and it's asset backed. And, you know, so you've got a piece of real estate that people are giving you a loan against, but you also need the equity, the at-risk capital that is required to, to bridge the gap and to provide the, the opportunity. And so we, as, a, as an investment bank and a capital markets advisory firm, come in and, and are now issuing investment grade product into the market, you know, that's only focused on Guyana. Got it. And so there's okay. no one really, there's no one doing that currently. You know, there's commercial banks down in Guyana. There's about six of them. There's regional banks throughout the Caribbean, but 
you know, no one has really gotten to the point where they're starting to really issue hundreds of millions and billions of dollars of product. And that's going to come, but ultimately someone has to create that product. And so we're in the unique position to do that. And then once that money is put together, this is where we work as a direct investor in Guyana to deploy that capital and manage that. And so that's where our Bain Capital, Bain Consulting model comes in, where we come in and actually work with our local Guyanese partners and build these companies and build these organizations to actually execute these projects. And so this allows us to kind of, once again, take advantage of where the country is going and our knowledge and our experience combined with our sophistication and our ability to tell stories and, and build networks and build systems and build infrastructure so that we can start bringing in the capital to the country. Because there's been a lot of underinvestment over the past five years due to a variety of factors in Guyana because of the result of the oil fine. So the only real major investments that have occurred in Guyana is the international oil companies building out the infrastructure. And so, you know, ExxonMobil and their partners has and Sinoc Nexon and a lot of the other oil companies that are there have invested, you know, close to probably I'd say $10 billion at this point, if not more, into Guyana from an oil field development standpoint. But that investment has not yet been matched by foreign direct investment into the commercial real estate industry, the construction industry, the infrastructure development, you know, and so there's this opportunity and pent up demand for all of these all these investors are wanting to come in, but they haven't had the opportunity to come in yet. And it's our job to kind of bridge that gap and, and, and act as the liaison between these international asset managers and the, the local operating environment. And that's where we, we've positioned ourselves to take advantage of that and, and to monetize that need. Thanks for listening in to this special bonus series of the Rare Birds Emerging Markets Podcast on Guyana, Startup Nation. You've just listened to part one, the origin story. If you enjoyed listening in, rate us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you thought this was informative, we look forward to seeing you for part two, the Guyana story. Until next time, Rare Ones. Bye for now.